All right, Nate, I'm ready whenever you are. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. Whatever time that you're listening to this podcast, we thank you for tuning your ears into our dulcet tones. I'm your host, Nate Fleming, the host of the Citadel Podcast, and I am joined by my uh, my, my very English co-host. I've been English You've before. Been English before? My very um, effortlessly effortful. I, look, I don't have an adjective. <laughs> I'm going to be honest. I don't have an adjective ready. Look, I'm joined by my better prepared than me co-host. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Joshua Sitter. Always happy to be back. Thank you, Nate. <laughs> very, very easy bar to achieve, being more prepared than you. But, uh, yeah, thanks for having me back, Nate. I'm excited. And you know what? The other thing, in, in this physical room, we have another person with us. The mm-hmm. uh, effervescent okay. Trefinia Flynn-Salzman. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Mm-hmm. And now we have you here because you've brought this is like a whole the whole intro seems like a comedy bit. And then you've brought with you <laughs> you have a wonderful guest you're introducing uh myself and Joshua to. Who who was this guest? Yes, I'm introducing Mr. Ben Maliso. He is an information security curmudgeon, also the host of Securitized Podcast and well-known author. One of the books that he is going to be promoting is called Exposed, where we talk about how privacy is actually a bad thing. But mm. we may have dissenting opinions. I don't know. I know you guys, Joshua and Nate, have pretty strong opinions about things. So we'll, well have to see. I do. Welcome, Ben. Thank you. Hello. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And Trefini, I'm really glad. I know you're one of my former students. I'm glad I haven't uh, totally isolated you from me for all time and and, uh, turned you off to ever speaking to me again. Thank you. Yes, I appreciate it, too. (laughs) Give it time. We're just starting the podcast, Ben. All right. Uh, So we kick everything off in the same way, giving me a peer to the podcast where I feel as though my question is important. And the rest of the podcast, we talk about things that I'm struggling to follow up with and trying to make explain so that my mom can know what it is. So that first question, pretty simple. What's your favorite dinosaur? That is actually a really tough question. And I think um, I've had several over my lifetime. I remember really liking the Triceratops when I was younger. Uh, It just seemed to be classically aerodynamic. You know, where some of the other ones were a bit more cumbersome. The Triceratops could cleave its way, you know, traversing the plains. Ben, I feel like a Triceratops mega fat. You you think? (laughs) You're blowing my whole seven-year-old mind here. No, no, no. His seven-year-old mind is correct. The frill at the top actually helped push air away, so it created an aerodynamic that that body would fit behind. Yeah, exactly. All right. We'll agree to disagree. Okay. <laughs> and so it begins. I did not come prepared for this question. You could tell. It's okay. It's okay. It, it hopefully is one of your four books as a dinosaur book. Uh, <sighs> you know, I, uh, I'm hesitant to share it, but last time I was home, uh, my father uh, gave me a stack of my old papers from third grade, and there's a dinosaur book I wrote in there. It's about four feet from me right now. That's awesome. Yeah. That's exactly <laughs> what I mean. Yeah, yeah, no. So, Triceratops. Triceratops is the one you're going with? I'll go with Triceratops. Triceratops. Great sure. choice. If it was T-Rex, we would have ended the call. <laughs> Thank you. Good. And You're very welcome. Yes. I you're like when welcome. a show that, has standards. That ends my knowledge. 
It does. Yeah. And the standards are right at the beginning. And then the rest of the podcast, we do whatever. Well, as long as I can make the bare minimum threshold, I'm okay. <laughs> ben, I'm going to double up with another hard-hitting question. Um, my son doesn't know this yet, but he will by the time this recording comes out. Um, we're surprising him with a puppy this Sunday. And I understand you've got a, you got a puppy there with you? Talk to me about that puppy. Uh, uh, This puppy is insane. I think all puppies are. Uh, (laughs) She is an Australian Catahoula doodle mix. She's a year and a half. And um, we're still waiting for her to slow down. Right now, she's given me five minutes of uninterrupted speaking time. So, so far, this is kind of a record. Uh, but I real. like her. You threw She's a bunch cute. of words together. She looks like a Muppet and sounds like an Ewok. So I have a hard time wanting to not uh, uh, have her in the house. That's great. I like that. What are you going to get your kid? What's her name? What's her name? Remy. Remy. See, but now I've Louisiana. said the name. I, we, no? Okay, good. The Beast Slumbers. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're getting a, a golden doodle. I'm picking it up on Saturday. It's costing a tremendous amount of money, and we'll surprise him with it on Sunday. Her best friend is a golden doodle that lives across the street. Um, that golden doodle is kind of one of the more famous golden doodles. It has its own um, Instagram and 30,000 followers. has been a star what? of a TV show. I'm trying to remember his Instagram handle, but his name is Rue. And uh, our neighbors are the stars of the TV show Southern Charms New Orleans. And um, golden doodles are awesome. Your, your kid's going to be so happy. And oh. you're going to be so exhausted in addition. How old's the kid? Uh, seven years old. But uh, but Ben, uh, if you wouldn't mind, just go and get uh, that dog. And we'll carry out the rest of the interview <laughs> with the famous Golden Doodle with 30,000 <laughs> followers. Uh, I could. I, I, I actually have access to their home, but... Um... Uh, then, then that, uh, that's all we would have for the entire. I don't know podcast, if you're supposed to say that. Two adorable dogs running around, and um, we wouldn't get to talk at all. And and I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, well, I'm not surprised that the guy who wrote a book about why privacy is a bad thing has access to his neighbor's home. Mm-hmm. <sighs> See, sometimes privacy is overrated. If you give someone access to your home, they'll walk your dog for you. So what is this even what I'm I'm trying to figure out where you're coming from. We've had mm-hmm. a bunch of people, we've had a bunch of champions for for yeah. privacy come and interview on this podcast and we've certainly talked about how privacy is just good. It's uh, across the board it's good. Right. People have a right to privacy. And now we've got Ben who's shaking things up. <laughs> where what hill are you dying on? That's a, that's a great question. Uh, and I got to tell you, as a security practitioner for most of my career, most of my adult life, I don't like the idea of privacy going away, but I recognize that it will. And I can see some of the benefits that that will prefer to all of us. Um, And I can see how privacy has been abused historically. Most of the book is just cases where privacy has been used in inimical ways. When you have secrets, when you have anything that you're ashamed of, that you want to keep private from someone else, that can be used against you. And it historically has, uh, particularly against disenfranchised groups, uh, such as the LGBT community, um, by the governments that were supposedly supposed to be protecting all the citizenry. 
you had laws that created those situations where someone, in order to act on their own feelings and personality, had to keep that secret from everyone else. And that made them susceptible to prosecution and persecution. Uh, I also prefer the idea of wide expression. And this is a uniquely American idea that my freedom of expression transcends your right to keep things secret. And I think it's good for equivalence and uh, equanimity. We don't have a class system. We don't have an aristocracy. When you allow one group to have more information than another group, that changes. So if I learn something about Donald Trump, if I learn something about Joe Biden, if I learn something about any of the Bush family, I should be able to publish that and say it how I want to say it, regardless of whether they would prefer me not to say it. And this is an opportunity for all of us to have an equivalence of power as opposed to have a dynamic where one group gets to lord it over somebody else, literally. Now, does that tie into free speech? Like that's what instantly comes to mind when we're when you're bringing this up. Yeah, it's why the U.S. doesn't have a federal privacy law because it would be directly contrary to the First Amendment. And you know, the EU has gone whole hog with this idea of privacy as a human right. And I think mm -hmm. I kind of understand the good intentions behind it, trying to empower the individual. But if I look at Europe. And I look at just the past 50 to 100 years, I can't think of worse arbiters of individual rights and power than European governments. That to me seems like giving the fox not just the chicken coop, but most of the farm too. <laughs> yeah, I can't think of a government that's more quickly adopting this, uh, this 1984 style surveillance state than what's going on over there. It, it, it's quickly becoming the cautionary tale that we read back in middle school. Yeah, yeah, it's it's Orwell as instruction manual as opposed to cautionary tale. And it is, it's terrifying. And how quickly they went there is is just fascinating to me. Can you guys kind of elaborate? Uh, if I can just throw out a recent example, I think this just happened last week. Um, the I think they call her the Home Secretary, Pretty Patel in the UK, in response to a recent terrorist attack where one of their members of parliament was stabbed to death. She suggested that one of the ways they could respond to this, the government, would be to force online content providers or social media entities to track all their users and report all the users to the government and to not allow anonymous accounts to convey information. You might rightly ask yourself, what does stabbing someone have to do with trolling anonymously online? And why did the government think that the latter would stop the former? Her line of thinking, and I guess her, her party's line of thinking, is that the reason the terrorist did what he did is not because he acted as an individual with a knife, but because he was radicalized by some uh, content online, I think it was YouTube that they were pointing to, mm. that made that infected his brain and made him do it, as if we can program individuals to go and be our Manchurian candidates. That, to me, is terrifying line of causation for a government to take. 
And to immediately jump to one crazy person did a bad thing to now we're going to take everybody else's right to free expression and anonymity away. That's that's uncomfortable to me. Yeah, I, I, I want to say um, there was a study that was done on the amount of like uh, surveillance systems that were employed under like, if you're a UK in citizen, London. Yeah. Three to yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. This was back in the 90s when I when I first looked at it. Three cameras yeah, well, for every one citizen. Yeah, and I and I think here recently, like they've tried to aggregate all the numbers of cameras, and there was a there was an estimate an estimation that was like it's it's almost five million cameras in the um, in the UK that are constantly surveilling the public, and uh, you know members of government came out and said like ah, it's actually closer to two million guys. Let's pump the brakes a little bit, <laughs> and they also heavily employ. Um, facial recognition software yeah, um, to kind of like drive some of their their database decision making and Nate we've talked I don't know that it's ever made it onto the podcast but we've talked a bunch of times about how when you use systems like um, facial recognition the algorithms that run that can be inherently biased against certain groups of people so I gotta tell you like it's getting harder and harder to take to dig my heels in the sand and hold the, the counterpoint for you Ben um, I, I think I'm starting to see the light here. You know, and it's funny. I tried to confirm those numbers when I was writing the, the book Exposed. I couldn't find any verification of that because there's too many privately owned cameras that the government can subpoena or otherwise request data from and co-opt. So there's no real accurate measure. And I saw some numbers as high as 15 million inside the London area alone. Jeez. It, it, and you talk about the, the algorithms and algorithmic bias. We just did a, an episode of my podcast a couple weeks ago about how Amazon's new pointless little robot is using facial recognition technology, even though the algorithms were proven by MIT to be biased against women and people of color. And it was funny what? that Amazon's trailer and ad for that robot featured a woman of color as being in the most footage of the ad overall. And I, I don't know if that was subtly trying to uh, take the sting out of that little piece of data. Yeah. Uh, and then to go back and explain Orwell, for those of you who are like, oh, I don't understand why they keep using the term Orwell. It's referring to a book George Orwell wrote called 1984, in which the government is all controlling and all seeing. So they see everything you do and they control everything you do. And I th I can't remember because I always get this mixed up with this and the other book. Animal Farm. One of them is Animal Farm. It's all like fear-based essentially where they they push you through fear to give up your control and your privacy so that the government can see everything and control everything you do. Big Brother is watching you is is the mm -hmm. catchphrase. Big Brother is ostensibly the leader of the government, the you know, the the Stalinesque character. Orwell was actually a socialist who was disaffected of the notion after he saw what happened under Stalinism, wrote one of the most damning books of both government overarching authority and fascism uh, and terror of a surveillance state. It seemed like science fiction when he wrote it in the 40s, 50s, but uh We've gone way past it today already. Yeah, it seems like we're there. And if you haven't caught up one of his books, you've definitely seen some media that's been inspired by those books. It laid the, the framework for a lot of science fiction that's followed that. Or I guess just reality. It's become a blueprint almost. <laughs> and yeah. Animal Farm was sort of the uh, uh, childrenized version of 1984. Same story, but 
taken in sort of a Watership Downey vibe. Uh, and they've made several yeah. films, including a very disturbing cartoon out of that book, too, which uh, don't watch that with your kid with the puppy in the room. You know, make sure that the, <laughs> the animal is secure before doing that. Yeah, make sure the puppy's okay. The yes. Kids, nah, whatever. Yes. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so actually, what, what I'm interpreting, what you guys are saying is that privacy is not necessarily a bad thing, but it's something that actually doesn't exist like anymore in that the governments and businesses are taking advantage of it. So why can't the public take advantage of it? That's really what I'm getting from what you're saying, Ben. Beautifully said, and I'm sorry I didn't lead with that. That's that's better than how okay. I described it. <laughs> I, what I see is we have what's what I call in the book imperfect privacy right now. There is some entity that knows everything about you, whether it's your credit union, yeah. whether it's your social media account, whether whether it's your government. The fact is, the only entity that doesn't have all that data is us, you, our neighbors, yeah. our society. And the thing that creates the power imbalance isn't the fact that we don't have privacy. We all voluntarily disclose this data, right? We put pictures of our kids on social media. We put pictures of our dinner out there for public consumption, right? If we were to have access to all the feeds that everybody else has, then privacy wouldn't be as much of an issue because we'd lose a lot of the shame of the things we were trying to hide in the first place, like bodily functions. And we would all be at an equivalent level of power. Nothing that we've done could be held against us because we have the hypocrisy check of looking at everybody else as well. That's kind of where I'm going. I don't look forward to that world because I was not raised in it and I'm not going to be used to it. <laughs> but I see it coming and I'd rather us not fight it tooth and nail because the longer we fight, the more power you're going to give to the larger entities that have that power originally as opposed to taking the power for ourselves. This, this is really compelling. Um, and, and, I, and I think that we've, we've illustrated the problem and we've given, some, we've given me some fears that I've never <laughs> had before to keep me up at night. Thank you for that, Ben. Um, but I'd love to spend some time talking about you know, a, a path to a solution. Yeah. What what can we what can we do about this, Ben? I want to be and <laughs> my my natural inclination was lie back and think of England, and I just I don't want to say that uh, on a on a public podcast. Um, I think we should be more accepting of it and demand that those types of legislation that would limit access to information uh, be denied and fought against. Um, so the, the European Union has the GDPR. California has basically the same law that they've created for their own state. And instead of the citizens rising up against it, they've said, yeah, we need this. This is it. We want to be more like Europe. Europe's the last thing I want to be like. We had two wars to get rid of Europe from our shores. That's a good thing. We shouldn't be here. Anyone who wants to be in Europe, go to Europe. They'd love to have you, especially if you're from California. You'll hate the weather. Um, I think we should be welcoming the benefits that it gives us. And I think we already are, whether we admit it or not. As much as we talk about privacy, my cat has a collar with a QR code on it 
where it's got his website and my address. So as as far as privacy goes, yeah, I can say maybe I don't want someone to know my secrets, but I want my cat home more than anything else. And I also want to see where he's been. So everyone who scans his QR code, their GPS locator tells me where he was scanned. That's a better world, even though it's a less private world. And I really want to know if all the people who are trying to make the laws to restrict these things are making carve-outs and caveats for their favored entities, whether it's financial institutions, insurance companies, um, Mm. law enforcement, and so forth. I think we should demand less privacy as opposed to more. So my the thing that's been in my mind is is like privacy as a safety issue. Say you need your location stricken from someone who can find you. How do you address that? That was the first thing my publisher asked me because he said we're not gonna we're not gonna put this book out. This is a terrible book. What you're doing is encouraging stalking. Uh, we're gonna get sued eighteen different yep. ways. My point is okay, sure. Um, and we use this exact example. Let's say there's someone who uh, poses you harm. As a famous comedian, obviously you had your share of stalkers, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, right? (laughs) How would you like to know how many people are watching you at any given time? I don't want to know that. How How many people have searched for your address? Which one of those bought an airline ticket to come to your city? And which car they Uh rented, what color it is, what license plate it is. And using all the ring doorbell cameras in your neighborhood, whenever that car approaches your street, you get an alert and you know that they're coming to you. I'd much rather know that my stalker was in proximity to do me harm because I had access to all that data. Even if it means telling my stalker, here I am, come and get me. At least we have equivalence. And if I need to do something about that, call law enforcement, call a friend to come over to my house to help protect me from the stalker, go buy a firearm if I feel that that's the extreme that I am going to have to go to. I can be better prepared the more I know about my antagonist than if they're going to surprise me. Privacy protects the ambusher, not the ambushed. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, Next time I ask a question that I think is smart, could you just hesitate for a little bit like it stumped you? <laughs> just like a pause. Because like everyone else is getting these great questions and there's like a pause and thinking. And then I ask mine and you're like, great, I've been waiting on this If it's one. any consolation, I had to fight my publisher for like a year to get this book published. And then like it didn't sell at all. So my publisher got really mad. So at, at oh, no. least, you know, the groundwork has already been laid and we've gone down these roads already. <laughs> okay. 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 I understand. So um, I'm just, I was trying to find your cat's website, but I was just Googling your name through, uh, I'm running your name through. You have to give me data to get data from me. It's, it's a fair trade. But down this, down this rabbit hole that I've gone down, I can see that you're kind of, you're, you're walking the walk. Your Reddit username is your first and last name. You're, you're out (laughs) there. You are, you are putting your information out there. And and I, I I respect that, and I'm and I'm looking at all these different ways that you are 
you're helping train people to get different mm -hmm. certifications. You've got a ton of information about here on the CISSP, which many look at as like the highest level of information security certification that you can receive. And anytime that I want to make people's eyes roll into the back of their heads, I'll bring up this CISSP concept called psychological susceptibility. Ben, I think that your <laughs> platform of leaving the bathroom door open uh, for all of our privacy, I think that it's gonna have the least amount of, of psychological susceptibility, even though there really is a lot of, your bucket is carrying a lot of water. When you said that privacy protects the ambusher, not the ambushed, like that, mm -hmm. that strikes a chord with me. I get that, but what do you, yeah. how, how yeah. could we as a community <laughs> embrace the, the privacy leave in our hands? It's When weird. you strike yeah. the C of confidentiality from the CIA triad of integrity and availability, security people get really upset. You're right. This is not an emotionally appealing concept. This is terrifying. It, it, it strikes at our very core of what we are as human beings to expose ourselves to the world. Hence the title of the book. Even if we're objectively correct and we have the metrics and data to demonstrate it, people are going to want to hang on to their superstitions. They're going to want to hang on to their biases for as long as possible. I don't know how to overcome that. And in 200 pages, I couldn't figure out how to make it sound great. We just, we just have way too much history behind us trying to show us how great privacy is and we've bought that hook line and sinker as of right now i can think off the top of my head the navajo code talkers and secrets are what helped us win the war and it's always about how great it is for us to keep secrets from other people in order to give us a position of power you're essentially saying hey you don't have power anymore and if no one has power everyone has power can you write the next book for me, please? Because you just said you made it a lot more appealing than I did. I mean, it's it it relates a lot to a lot of things that I'm concerned about when it, mm -hmm. it, it talks about the social sphere of how there is a created idea of a group of people who is better than the created idea of other groups of people. And it almost maps over it exactly where if you just take the power away from the powerful you then realize that there was no power there in the first place. They just it, said there was. They just took it or they they invented it. Exactly. exactly. I, I was a journalist uh, for several years and I still do some freelance stuff every now and then. I am constantly fascinated by the fact that just by having your byline in a newspaper, people think you're smart or authoritative <laughs> or that you've done something that nobody else has done. Mm -hmm. And what I've loved in the past 15, 20, 25 years is we've seen 14-year-olds with cell phones doing better journalism on the ground, capturing stuff as it happens that exposes what's going on. And I think all the way back to the Rodney King film when, when I was yeah. A, yeah. a young person. 91. And how that exposed the practices of the LAPD and this you know disparity of treatment. And how that created that social conversation that had not taken point or, or, or had not been given evidence and a voice and uh, a look up until that point. And I think this is kind of constantly be better for everyone the more we expose things.
there's a, a debate going on locally here over whether or not our local police should have body cams or not. Yeah. And the argument is we need that privacy to protect. And they don't really have there's no solid. This is who we're protecting. It's just privacy is thrown out as the thing. And the other side is if there's transparency, that increases safety and trust. You know, and it's funny because I've seen this with cops over and over again. They fight it, they fight it, they fight it. Then they get the cameras and suddenly they realize they have a way of documenting the way citizens treat them and the behavior yep. that's going on. And when a citizen shows up in court and is nicely polished and has an attorney and says, this cop, you know, did something wrong and the cop or the prosecutor puts the video on and it shows the citizen drunk and, you know, screaming and cursing at the cop. Not that I have much sympathy for the police, but it makes everything fair and even and level. And it gives the cop the backstop of the truth if the truth is in favor of the, the, the cop. I, I, I think it's great. Where, where is it you're at? Where are you located? Lakeland, Florida. Oh, Florida. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The, the debate's been going on for the past year or so. Mm-hmm. And the right we have our election coming up in like two weeks, I think. I yeah. think so, yeah. In which yeah. one candidate is absolutely not for body cams and the other is absolutely for. Mm-hmm. So we'll see how that kind of plays out. Interesting. Interesting. Good luck with that. I, I, I honestly think it makes everything better. And I love that the almost scripted procedure right now is something terrible happens the police claim that their body cameras were acting erroneously or failed to operate during that moment Mm -hmm. two weeks later somebody leaks the actual recording from inside the police department then the cops have to own up to their mistake that is a beautiful process and it also explains why we need anonymity if not privacy so that leaks can happen as well. Uh, another reason why I don't like the mm-hmm. idea of government compelling social media to track its their users. Body cameras are a great example of things that protect everybody. Yeah, and and I think your your vision fully realized there would be there would be transparency in the in the monitoring systems. Right. We as citizens would see, oh, there there in fact was a technical issue. Here's a log that says there's a device failure that's on that body camera. So we understand because we all have the same information. We can we can we've got the full story. We can understand why an isolated incident um, might have a body camera that gets turned off or we sure could smell when when a lie was being told absolutely so i i can't help but think how this all kind of relates to i've seen it i've seen like papers and things about governments uh, grading people and saying oh this person is a good person China. yeah and they they get a higher score and that the chinese model. i mean that's a lack of privacy right and so i could see this falling in that line Absolutely agreed, and and I gotta be I gotta be honest. I gotta fess up. This wasn't uh, strictly my notion. I, I I'm a nerd boy from way back. Uh, there were some science fiction stories that influenced me greatly on this. Damon Knight wrote one of them. Isaac Asimov wrote another. I forget the names of them offhand, but I mentioned them in the book. Uh, and they sort of foretold this world of non-privacy and what might occur. Uh, and in Damon Knight's book, the one that the example that I really liked is 
at the same moment that one husband realizes his wife is cheating on him because of this new unprivacy technology, that wife's brother, the husband's brother-in-law, meets him outside his front door and says, I know where you're going. If any harm falls bef- to, to my sister, I know where you live too. So the unprivacy, while it may reveal things that are ugly about what goes on around us, will also protect each of us as well. I've never been more conflicted. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. I feel like this could also help with misinformation campaigns and conspiracy theories that are like exploding on social media. Yeah. If we all have access to the exact same information and we all know all the secrets, then there is no misinformation that can happen because there are no secrets hidden from us. Yeah, but It's just data. I guess my thought is who's I mean, someone still has to control that data. Like some company still has to have all of that data somehow. Right. There's going to be. I mean, whether you can privatize this or a government's going to control this or one world order, I don't know who's going to control it, but the this I'll, the, Nate's going to control it. I'll go into it. more science fiction if you want. You watch the TV show Silicon Valley? <laughs> uh, yeah, familiar with it. The idea of Pied Piper is distributed processing and storage. So instead of having a centralized cloud data center... oh. You instead have everyone have fractions of the data. Everyone <laughs> has bit level copies of the data. Blockchain. It's like it's blockchain. Yeah. It's blockchain. Gosh. Oh. And we we have a public ledger. We we know the transactions. You know, we're not there yet. And the technology but I see it coming. Yeah, and, and and I'm even thinking like I'm thinking practically like how would we how would we pull this off? Right, we talk about managed detection response all the time. Yeah, and it, like our big selling point for that is you can do this yourself. You can build out your own endpoint detection response program to build out the best security that's on the planet. But your one idle workstation is still going to generate a million logs a day. How do we aggregate? a million logs from your computer and a million logs from your cell phone and a million logs from your bank activity and how do we aggregate all that stuff together? And then you said blockchain and now I'm thinking about this Shangri-La paradise where all systems, all IOT are constantly processing all of the world's data. Ben, you just sold a book. Yeah. Thank you. I see. There's one more. That's like double my income for the, the year. I think my, my publisher is going to be thrilled. Um, and, and I'll go one step further beyond just the IoT and the potential AI and quantum computing, sure. you know, fantasy or utopia that we're always promised but never find. I'll go one step further. Nerd analysts that are quasi on the autistic spectrum who are bored and have nothing better to do and are crowdsourcing a bunch of trivia and minutiae anyway. Everyone from train spotters with little logbooks sitting and counting train cars all the way up to some bored analyst in a basement looking at ones and zeros scrolling across their screen are going to reveal more data to us than all of our tools, than our intel agencies possibly could crowdsourcing this stuff is going to give us more value things we couldn't even predict or or portend i wanted to play devil's advocate this episode i had it like in me yeah 
uh, and then his first sentence, I was like, I'm not, I want more, I want more information now yeah. on, his, on his side. Should, should I say I hate dogs now or something like that? I mean, should I give you something to attack me on? Or? It, it felt so easy to hold the dialogue because I'm like, okay, this guy is clearly crazy. Privacy is bad. This is going to be shooting fish in a barrel. And then his mm-hmm. intro was checkmate. The only, I mean, I think about like my mom and dad and family and they would never go for this. Sure. Like, my, I mean. Same. Well, even now, I intellectually agree with Ben. Yeah. But I emotionally disagree with Ben. <laughs> oh, it makes my skin crawl. I mean, yeah. <laughs> the, the very idea of giving up the things I don't want to expose to the world mm-hmm. makes me terrified. And not. Not necessarily from a prosecution standpoint, because I think the felonies that I've committed were long in the past, but (laughs) at least from a persecution standpoint, you know, if everything knew everything about me, how ugly could they paint me? Mm -hmm. But the beauty of it holistically, and again, like you said, I understand this objectively, but not emotionally. If you saw me in totality, I think the result would weigh in my favor. And that's the defense, that even when you take the picture of the Covington kid smirking in front of the Native American guy who's playing the instrument, and that was framed as the kid being vile and mocking the veteran, but when you saw the totality and you could pull back and you got the different angles, you got the audio, you got an hour's worth of video prior to the incident, suddenly you see a minor being approached by an adult walking into his personal space and banging a drum in his face and the kid standing stoically and taking it. That is the kind of future I want to live in. When we learn the truth and when it plays out publicly, there's no way to attack the child anymore. Yeah, honestly, like I I think that what you're talking about eliminates fear in, in so many cases. I, I've got these two kids and anytime I take them to the park by myself, I, I there are so many rules for how I can interact with any of their friends or strangers who were there and it's it's awful honestly it's it's awful I hate taking my kids to the park just because of what what a perception might be of a single guy at uh at a park if if there was a if it, if people could see my history if they could see my social character I don't I don't have those concerns all of a sudden mm-hmm. you're liberated Ben Maliso. <laughs> the truth will out. <laughs> that's uh, that's M A L I S O W. You can just Google him and get everything. Um, but <laughs> but Ben, if 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 you want to direct people's attention somewhere specifically, how should they how should they keep up with what you're working on? Uh, please feel free to come to my website about Infosec. It's called Securitized with a Y. That's securityzed.com. Uh, we also do a weekly podcast called The Sensuous Sounds of Infosec, <laughs> available on all podcast platforms wherever you want. Uh, my books are on Amazon. Um, I'll have some new courses coming out on Udemy uh, in January. And um, thank you very much for this opportunity. Y'all are great. I love the chemistry on your show and, and the humor, the fact that you don't get bogged down in the nerd details. And instead, you make it approachable and understandable. Well, I've got, I've got two things before we close out. I hope it's not more dinosaur stuff. Please. <laughs> First is, uh, when it comes to dinosaurs, what do you think is their ethical impact? No, I'm just kidding. Um, the first thing is, it sounds like you're, you're like on the edge of using the word 
info sexy on your podcast? By design. Okay. All right. Cool. That's that was <laughs> the first I, I, question. We're trying to channel that character that Tim Meadows played on Saturday Night Live a long time ago, <laughs> yes. where he had a glass of Covassier yes. and you're sitting in the leather armchair, and it was very seventies and retro. You know. Yes, that, that, that's the first one. Uh, good Tim Meadows character reference, by the way. The second one is. What is the piece of advice that is most impactful to you right now? Professionally, personally, otherwise. Oh, that see, now you made it overbroad. I was going to say, okay, professionally, go into digital forensics. That's the future. That's the money. There's more work there than anyone could possibly perform. And lawyers just want to hire you right now. Go into digital forensics. Personal advice? Um... Oh, gosh. <laughs> I don't know. The world has changed so much. Uh, um, personal advice, invest in gasoline before we get to the, the road warrior uh, days. Learn how to fire a bow because bullets will be at a premium. Uh, you know, I, I honestly don't know. Sorry. I love it. I love it. Man. Th- so there's a podcast where I tell my whole life story. <laughs> but this is my favorite podcast we've done so far. Hmm. This has been fun. All right. This has been fun. I feel like I've been a part of it. Mm-hmm. Ben, you've been amazing. Uh, Josh, you've been amazing. That's odd. Mm. The host feels like he was a part of his podcast. <laughs> and no, isn't that weird? <laughs> Most of the time, I feel like I'm playing catch up. Different Trying things. to make bits to make it seem like I belong. <laughs> Trafinia, you've been amazing. Uh, ben, we end the episodes every single time the same way. I'm going to do a rhythm, and you go ahead and finish it off. Ba-da-ba-da-ba-ba. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. That was awesome.